Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Chuckanut, Washington. And we mentioned we might go there from last week. This is actually really Ray's request. When I saw how Ray responded to Chuckanut, I thought, we got to go there. So we're coming to you from Chuckanut. I've always wanted to go there. Yeah. So, so what's your thinking, Chuckanut? <laughs> There's no going back. There's no going back. And Jeff, you being from Washington, now that we're in Chuckanut, any thoughts? Only regrets, but I've moved beyond them. <laughs> oh, listen, citizens of Chuckanut, please forgive us. We shouldn't be making fun of you, but it's too difficult not to. We'll go ahead and do it anyway. And if we lose you as a part of our listening audience, so be it. We're moving on. Last week, we had the opportunity of having Jeff Trapman with us, uh, as we said, a dear friend and a fellow who's been in the business for decades and has wonderful thoughts on coaching. And this particular session, we wanted to focus on the structure of coaching. How do we structure coaching relationships? And I had even recommended to Jeff and Bear that what we would do is just start and begin to play off of each other's thoughts in terms of how we go about structuring different coaching relationships and maybe even bring up an example or two. So thoughts on structure. Well, um, a couple of things come to my mind. I, I think we mentioned this in the previous time together is to have some sort of definition for what success might look like for the relationship. You know, it could be something that's behaviorally based or developmentally based, but something that says, hey, we're going to spend and invest time together. What might success look like for you? If we've been wildly successful in our time together, where would we have gotten to that would make sense for you and for this relationship? So I think that's part of it. Let me, let me clarify a minute, JT. When you said sex, success for the relationship, I thought you might be talking about the parameters or boundaries you would set in terms of how the relationship was going to operate. But you're also saying success in terms of outcome. You mm-hmm. want to separate those or can you give me an example of uh, those? You know, for example, I remember working with this vice president who was one of the technical thought leaders for a company. It was a utility. And the guy was heads and shoulders above his peers in the organization around the ability to identify strategy and what's going on in the market. But it was clear to him that when it came to being a thought leader around relationships and people and his team, he was more used to being the go-to person to get projects done than he was to mobilize the talents around him and to give them the uh, an opportunity to, to be key contributors. So that really became more of, so what would success look like? And mm-hmm. that he was spending less time sharing his thoughts and knowledge about the industry and where is it going, and more time cultivating some of the vision and the goals from the the group and and mobilizing them to have a level of ownership that he felt he had in his job. Mm -hmm. So he was a contributor who was needing to learn how to be more of a facilitator of other success. And so really getting a clearer definition of what we're doing and what we're about in terms of lending itself to you being able to coach him on certain behaviors to get better at something that he wasn't necessarily good at. Let me ask you a question of both of you while we're starting into the structure. What percentage of the number of people you coach are you coaching because they or someone else saw problem behavior? They or someone else felt something needed attention? 
And it wasn't purely developmental in the sense of they were trying to shore up their strength. They were trying to advance their skills at what they were already very good at. You want to go first, JT? Sure. I think I would probably go 60-40. I think 60% of the folks that I would work with in certainly the more individualized coaching experiences would be somewhat performance-related. The 40% would be more where I was working with an organization or a group where they're, they're just doing, they're wanting to do leadership development at a more senior level. And so they wanted somebody to come in and provide a more coaching-based developmental experience where we would baseline some key leadership qualities. Everybody would kind of look at which areas they would want to work on, and then we would select those and work on that. And it was strictly making an investment in their leadership team. And I would say for me, the percentages are probably much higher. Originally, as you were asking the question, Barry, I was thinking it could be as high as 90% in terms of someone seeing something in an individual that says this needs to be corrected. This needs to be improved. Didn't mean that they weren't successful. They, they probably were generally very successful, but there was a behavior that someone wanted to address. Now that I say that, there was a period of time I was asked to coach executives coming into new role. Mm-hmm. If there were particular behaviors identified as problematic and mm-hmm. the wrong belief, they had no clue as to how to navigate corporate headquarter world. And because I had this fairly long-term relationship with the company, they were saying, you know us, you got us down, you know how we work. We want you to help these people get more acclimated to the new role we're asking them to play. And along the way, as you begin to see things, help them address those. How about you, Barrett? What's been your experience? Well, my experience has been in that 80%, 90% category of people being sent to me. Mm-hmm. And then what I'm hearing you say is, on one hand, there's this idea that some companies create a program where every executive is going to get the chance to get conversation and assessment. My experience has been most often that people enter my contact as a coach with them with a lot of resistance Mm. in the sense that they didn't volunteer to do this. They were said they needed to do this. They were sent to do this. They were required to do this. And so very often in the structure of the coaching relationship for me, I have to try to convince them or best I can that I'm on their side. Mm -hmm. My contact with them is for them, regardless of who I'm being paid by. If I'm being paid by a group on their behalf, and it's a developmental investment, I refer to it that way, I still recognize that they believe I'm working for the people who are paying me. And that it could be that I'm trying to get connected in a way that gives that organization more insight on how to deal with me rather than this truly being for me. Part of the structuring a coaching relationship to me is making sure that this person understands I don't see them negatively. Mm-hmm. No matter what the reason was we're connected, I don't start with the assumption that the truth of the world is this person's got a problem and we've got to fix it. That's a great observation, Baron. What I hear you saying is, boy, if a lot of our coaching relationship, Jeff's identify 60%, you and I identify 80 to 90%, starts with someone wants them coached, there is a resistance there. And so the idea of overcoming that resistance, and I'm hearing you say, one way of overcoming that resistance is to help them understand you're not against them. You're not coming into this with a negative viewpoint. As much as possible, you're on their side. That's the purpose of your coaching is to help them. And I think that's a great observation because I think somewhere in every coaching relationship, and this is for the listening audience, you encounter the movement from resistance to, oh, you really are on my side. You really are here to help me. 
Any other things you do, any other things you do to get that headed that way, besides the idea of helping them understand that you really are for them? Well, I think I've alluded to this before. One of the elements in most of the coaching engagements I've had would be to collect feedback from people that they value. So they end up choosing, if it were eight or 10 folks, they would end up choosing six or seven of those folks. The person sponsoring the coaching engagement might choose a couple's review of that a few, but uh, it's partly giving them choice over collecting information that it kind of gets away from whoever's paying for this has a strategy in mind, or they want me to do this or that. And it's more about getting them to think about how to own some of this process in a way that would be helpful to them. I also think that spending some time just to really be a kind of more observant of what's going on in their world and what's important to them. And if they were funding this for themselves, is there something that they would want to get out of it? Mm. And finding ways to be for them early on in the encounter that doesn't keep taking us back to who's paying for the engagement and what's biases there that's going to be there all the way through. Appreciate that, Jeff. And it, it goes back to our last session when I commented that I may push a little on this issue of starting with positive information. Actually, one of the things I do is I start with the bad news. In fact, my model is bad news, good news, details. So almost inevitably, in every coaching relationship, I ask them, why do you think we're here? Why mm-hmm. do you, and when they respond, if it's on target, I'll say, that's what I heard. Or if it's not, I'll say, that's not what I heard. I'll give an extreme example. <laughs> I'm coaching a fellow and we're working well together, but the organization decided as a part of the coaching relationship is they would get him to read the book, The No Asshole Rule. <laughs> Here you laugh a bit. I read the book with him and our first coaching session, I asked him, why do you think the organization asked you to read that book? And he said, well, I think there must be at least one person out there who thinks I'm an asshole. And I said, actually, there are a bunch of people out there. (laughs) The fact is, that is a perception, and it needs to be addressed. Now, that's the bad news. Mm -hmm. news, This fellow was particularly bright, very sharp, caught on quickly, understood what was going on. And what he was doing was simply kind of unaware of the impact of his behavior. He had not been in a leadership role before in which his behavior gets so magnified. So I started with the bad news. The good news is you're totally capable of dealing with this if you want to. And here's where we go next, if that's what you want to do. Now, I would add to the structure conversation, and I tend to do this now more than I have in the past, is I'll say, in each coaching session, what's one thing you got out of this? And do we want to continue this? I want them to feel like they have bought into this and there's something they're getting out of it that causes them to say, I want to be in this. I personally have always felt uncomfortable with not that strategy, but one that's close, which is good news, bad news, good news. The sandwich approach. Yes. I'll get the bad news in there, but I'll surround it with good news so it doesn't become quite as pointed or painful. And my feeling about that is that's really counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Because whenever, and I, there are must have been a few times I did that, because what would happen is they'd focus on the good news and ignore the bad news. Mm-hmm. Because there's twice as much good news, apparently, as there is bad news if I'm sandwiching it. The other thing is it gets confused. Mm -hmm. I I think then they become selective in their hearing. So my tendency is not to join things. If there's bad news to be delivered, hard news that's going to be delivered. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be surrounded by something that's going to make you comfortable. And you know, when you say that, Bear, I think one of the advantages in coaching relationships is if we can deliver that bad news in the right way, it increases that trust. 
doesn't reduce it. The person hears that as, wow, you said that non-judgmentally. However, you did it in tone and in content, you've communicated that bad news. And you've said time and time again, Bear, on the podcast about it's all about the sense of whether the other person is picking up an evaluative tone to what we're delivering. So I think there is a real added value in terms of enhancing the relationship by going ahead and delivering the bad news. And any coach that's reluctant to deliver the bad news needs to get out of the business. That's what we're about is to be able to speak to, here's what you need to change. Here's what needs to be corrected, or we're not being helpful at all. And I don't think of coaching as a feel-good experience. In fact, I remember being interviewed with another coach that was involved in a leadership group. She was coaching some people, and I was coaching a few others. And it was definitely, hers was the sandwich approach. It was definitely, even in the experience, it was about being very positive on the beginning and saying a few things, but then coming back. And afterwards, the person who had me working within their group took me aside and said, this is why we hired we don't expect you to be a feel-good person. I didn't see myself coming in and, you know, with blazing guns or anything, but I was more interested in getting to the heart of issues that were holding somebody back or could move them forward. And I don't know what you two think about this. When I look across the coaching things, if I looked at the, the subject matter, what was the thing I spent more time working with someone on than any other thing? It was emotionally charged communication. Hmm. You know, smart people that had risen to a place, they're in a high pressured role or whatever, and they've never dealt with their emotionally charged communication and, of course, diminish its impact on their team or on the group they're a part of. And don't get the fact that when you have those moments, those are all the moments that people remember. And it doesn't matter what they said. All they remember is, I don't ever want to be in that situation with this person again. Mm hmm. Take that a little further, JT, in terms of, because you saw, although the audience couldn't see us, Bear and I were shaking our heads rather vigorously in terms of the notion of emotionally charged. We've spoken to it before in terms of what executives find most difficult are confrontation situations, conflict management situations. Those are always the ones that are very difficult to deal with. In fact, I think Bear, uh, Rebecca, uh, commented during our family thing that that was the one communication situation that she always found most difficult was when there was a lot of right. conflict right. or emotional charge in it. So I think you've hit the nail on the head, JT. But any thoughts in terms of how we could structure to address that? Or do you have any unique methods that you deal with in terms of emotionally charged communication and how you deal with that in a coaching relationship? Well, on a personal note, I would say that the people I've worked with where that's an issue, I stress the idea that you need to be saying things to people and not about people. And you need to be hearing things said to you, not about you. Hmm. The way you reduce that emotional mm -hmm. charge is to keep enough distance between the comment and the individual that you can process it effectively without taking it so internal that you can't work with it well. So that is one of the axioms I tend to use in coaching is, Please remember when we're talking, I'll be saying things to you, but don't presume I'm ever saying anything about you. Hmm. I don't know you well enough to be saying things about you. And quite frankly, as an adult, I don't think you should allow people, except a handful, to say something about you. Mm -hmm. They haven't traveled the road with you. They don't know you. They don't know from which you came. They don't know where you want to go necessarily. So you need to handpick the people you're willing to hear them say something and, and allow it to be about you. Mm -hmm. So I try to desensitize that possibility just by them considering, let's keep this in a space where you can look at it objectively or as objectively as you can 
without internalizing it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's an excellent point. One thought comes to my mind is they're usually triggers when somebody has emotionally charged communication. They're usually a trigger. Right. They either pay attention to or don't pay attention to. Sometimes it could be somebody that sits in a meeting. They're not honoring the room. They're not adding value to what anybody else says. They're just waiting for their time to vent and just to say what's wrong. It could just comes through as judgment and is not taken well because they've just been waiting for the perfect time to unload, so to speak. So one of the thoughts that I would try to convey is, you know, what can you do to stop yourself before you get in? Because once you open your mouth and you start going down that road, you're going to feel totally justified with whatever comes out. You've already resolved that. (laughs) For example, when you feel that way, get out of the room. Excuse your thing, you know, when, when I don't care if it's a one-on-one thing or you're in a group. When you're ready, when you know you're ready to give somebody to let them have it and they've, they've earned it in the conversation, it hasn't taken you long to figure out they deserve to hear this. Excuse yourself. Get out of the room. Make up, you know, I realize I don't have, this is important. I don't really have the time to talk about it. But to simply get out of the room. If they can learn to preempt their own or they just go off on somebody, it can be very helpful in terms of them gaining back some of the destructiveness that they've caused. Yeah, well, Jeff, I and, and Bob may cut this later. <laughs> your comments reminded me of my approach to talking with young men about their sexual conduct. Mm-hmm. This will be cut, Bear, so go right ahead. And And they would say, well, when I'm there parked in my car with my girl, how do I stop myself? And I would say, you're already beyond the stopping point. You should not have parked the car, and you maybe shouldn't be in the car with the, this person. And I think that that's so true that when you get these triggers and you know what they are, right. you need to program in a stop, a hard stop, mm-hmm. and a choice of different behavior because it, it's going to go where it's going to go. That's right. Yeah, That's your history. Well, guys, we, believe it or not, are out there again. We're at the end of time. JT, any chance of having you back? I think we just got started on this one. There's so much more to talk about, in my opinion. Are you going to have to start charging us? (laughs) Or are we going to have to change the name of the podcast? That's right. Twins plus one. Or the triplet stock clear-cut communication. (laughs) So we're going to get you back, JT? Sure, we can do it again. It's too much fun to say no. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or a situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast.